Hello, and welcome back to Things Are Going Great For Me, a podcast about the arts and the entertainment business. My name is Jay Claude Deering. I'm an actor and a comedian. If you're new here, welcome. Pull up a chair and get comfortable. Or maybe you're in the backyard pitching a tent so your kids can experience camping for the first time. Whatever you're doing, we want you all to enjoy yourselves. You can follow me, your host, at Deering on both Twitter and Instagram, and you can follow our show handle on Instagram at Things Are Going Great For Me. There you'll find our link tree that has links for our email list and some brand new merch, including a quietly dignified Things Are Going Great For Me coffee mug. Perfect for your pumpkin spiced latte. Welcome to fall, by the way. We've also got hoodies, t-shirts, and tote bags, and even a Things Are Going Great For Me safety mask, folks. So check them out and listen in comfort, style, and good health. You can find all our products in our link tree on our show Instagram page at Things Are Going Great For Me. On our link tree, you'll also find our Patreon, which features additional interview coverage from both our Season 1 and Season 2 guests, including our bonus Quarpod series, in which I ask guests about how they're adjusting to life in our seemingly unending quarantine and how it's changing life in the entertainment industry. Our Patreon is a vital part of making this show happen, so if you'd like to support us, give us a subscribe on there. You can check us out on Patreon directly at patreon.com slash things are going great for me. And by the way, we're thrilled to be sponsored for this series by Icelandic Glacial, the purest tasting water on Earth, sourced from the legendary Ulfus Spring in Iceland, naturally filtered through ancient lava rock, and certified carbon neutral for both product and operation. You are what you drink. Be a force of nature. Icelandic Glacial natural spring water sourced from Iceland. Available on Amazon, IcelandicGlacial.com, and a retailer near you. If you like any of what you hear today, please do us a big kindness. Subscribe to the show, leave us a nice comment, tell your aunt about us, give us those five stars wherever you're getting your podcast from today. On this series, you'll hear from huge movie stars, big TV stars, famous podcast hosts, and even some bright, shining Broadway stars, as well as second guest interviews with exciting up-and-coming comics and actors and established producers, authors, writers, and directors. Today's first guest is Jim O'Hare. Jim is an Emmy-winning actor and comedian. He's known to everyone as the beloved Jerry Gergich from Parks and Recreation, also known to fans of the show as Larry, Terry, and Gary. Jim was kind to come on my much sillier web series version of this that I did over at Funny or Die years ago, in which in one episode, Jim and I shared a passionate kiss. True story. (laughs) And he's very kind to come back on for this format. We talk about his Chicago days doing theater and comedy, including his cult theater hit Stumpy's Gang, which initially brought him out to L.A., We talk about the audition process for Parks and Rec and some fun gossip from the Parks and Rec cast family text chain. We also talk about playing against type and his recent Emmy win for his work on The Bold and the Beautiful. It's a great chat. Jim's one of my favorite people. I'm honored he came on to talk with me. I'll be speaking with him in a few minutes. And a little bit later, you'll also get my interview with Joan Ford. Joan is an Emmy-nominated writer for her work on Funny or Die's hilarious recap series, Gay of Thrones, starring Queer Eye's Jonathan Van Ness. Joan also worked with me on the web series version of this show over at Funny or Die. We talk about her work at the UCB Theater, including her long-running sketch show, Seinfeld the Purge. (laughs) We also talk about the early days of Funny or Die, her writing for the animated series Thundercats Roar, and her upcoming series, Tiny Toons University. Joan is wonderful, funny, and insightful. Stick around for her interview. You're not going to want to miss it. Um, so this is a big episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mr. Jim O'Hare. Jim O'Hare. <laughs> He's a lovely guy. He's great. He's kept. He really wants to kiss you. 
Yeah, he really again. He, he sure does again. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I will. Uh, that kiss was very, very memorable. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has a uh, a, a monstrous tongue. <laughs> Jesus Christ! Oh my god! <laughs> and um, I'll never forget it. Um, so uh, so Winston Fall has arrived. Mm-hmm. Uh, and with it comes Halloween. You play yeah. drums in a fantastic band called called Drac and the Swamp Rats, in yep. which you all dress up as iconic Halloween characters. For example, you dress up as Frankenstein. Yep. Um, so is this your favorite time of year? It, uh, yeah, it's a blast. It this one's a little bittersweet because we're not on tour because uh, yeah. there is still a pandemic. So it's our second Halloween in a row. We're not we're not on tour. You were gonna tour. Uh, we were planning on it, and then things have shifted, and for the best. We're still gonna play shows, just not. We're not gonna like. We're not gonna go to Oklahoma and Texas, basically. <laughs> um, Got it. You're you're a uh, great yeah. you're a great drummer. Thanks, um, bud. Thank you. How long how long have you been playing drums? Uh, uh, twenty years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, since and I it, it shows. I, thanks, thanks, thank you, thank you. I feel like I'm not as good as I should be. Uh, it's also weird to think that I've been doing anything for 20 years. It's real weird to think about because in my brain I'm still 18, and that's impossible. Well, you're an so. example of what I would call the uh, <laughs> the quintessential modern man, uh, in my opinion. In that, <laughs> okay, you you pursue these multiple interests at once. You're mm-hmm. a comedian, a drummer. A producer. You also mm-hmm. love cooking. Mm-hmm. What is your what's your what's your general philosophy about life? Uh, never commit to any one thing, and also never be successful in any one thing. <laughs> <laughs> Just a weekend warrior, sort yeah. of. Yeah, yeah. Never sleep. Never sleep. Always, <laughs> always say yes to everything. I'm do also. You, uh, do you yeah, need to be around people constantly, or do do you get? Does it make you nervous to be alone? Can you spend no. time with yourself? No, I can totally. Sp- I like spending time with myself. I uh, I'm a very social person, but uh, a big thing that people who know me very well uh, is alarming is when once when I'm around people, I'm enjoying it. I have a blast. But then, like at a point, I'm like, I need to, to get the fuck away from all of you. Yeah, <laughs> I need to go sit alone for like a full day and just <laughs> do what I want to do. And it's like play video games, watch TV. But I, I absolutely require alone time. Did you uh did you catch any of the Emmys? Uh yesterday. Uh, no, okay, not really. Um I didn't either. I've seen since some of the people who won. I'm very excited for all of the Ted Lasso wins and I mean right. in general, uh, congrats to everyone who won. I did read that uh no one thanked their IOTC crew members, which is a real bad look I, right now. I heard Kate Winslet was the only person to thank oh, really? a crew member. Okay, yeah. Okay, good. Good. Uh, cause, uh, we're really headed for a real deal shutdown of all film production. So maybe they should have done that. Yeah. So you and I talked about this off mic a little bit, uh, last week, I think it was Mm -hmm. that we're, we're gearing up for potentially a big, uh, strike of the IATSE union, which, uh, represents all the, uh, crew members, you know, including but, does it include makeup and hair and all I of that? I don't know if it includes makeup and hair. I do know that it includes po- a lot of post production, like editors. Yeah. Yep. So when you think of uh, all the people who both plan a shoot and then execute a shoot and then do all the work after the shoot, it's almost all of them. Yeah, and I think you know, and we were talking a little bit about this. Like, I've worked on a, I worked on a series once where they were doing an anthology and they had twelve episodes to shoot and they were working in teams. 
around the clock. And I remember mm-hmm. at the time thinking, like, these folks are incredible. These are superstars. And mm-hmm. saying so to them and not really realizing at the moment that, like, while that is true, it's also that they're being forced to yeah. do these insane turnarounds yep. and, and get very little sleep and all of this it's and an unbelievably unsafe working environment. So we, I think, I think you're right. I think that we are, you know, it's, I, what I've read is that there has not ever been a strike in their history. So my feeling would be, and because of the, the demands of the streaming networks that are trying to get mm-hmm. so much for yep. paying as little as possible, I think you're right. I think a strike is coming. I think it's needed. Yeah. Um, I wish all those folks, while they are the engine yeah. Uh, of this business. And, you know, somebody I did see somebody was saying, you know, well, they're going to strike against the industry. And then, you know, folks in, in that union saying we are the industry. You know? Yeah, it's 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 almost as if I mean, it really is like it's essentially everyone below the line. Like like it's anyone who's yeah. <laughs> anyone who's not eligible for an Emmy or like it's like kind is of that bullshit. True? I, guess I mean, except for true. editing, except for like editing yeah. stuff. But, like, it's really, I mean, when you go on a film set, there's, like, when you think of jobs in in uh, in in the film industry, right, you think of uh, directors and writers, and but you don't even really think of producers, because, like, that's such a nebulous job. Certainly but, when I was, like, a kid growing up. Mm-hmm. I didn't and even actors, know what a producer right? was. Yeah. And then yeah. you go, and then you go to your first film set, and you realize there are 200 people there who aren't the director or the writer or the producer, all of those people are the, are IATSE. And yeah. they're the ones who make the shit happen. They're the people who drive you to set. They're the people who uh, put the sets right. together, who light it, who run electrical, like all of the shit that like, it, these things are small miracles, but they're not, they don't come out of nowhere. Yeah, that's and, right. And these people have been like, I mean, I've been reading. There's a, I think, IA stories, IA underscore stories. There's an Instagram, Instagram account now that is uh, doing these call outs about the horrible working conditions. Yeah. They're horrific, man. Like, like, yeah. really, like, you don't realize, like, the, I mean, because, like, and I mean, I've done a bunch of background stuff in a couple very small speaking roles in major productions. I've made movies, yeah. like, with my friends, and that's different because, you know, we're both all on screen and are the crew. Um, yeah, that's right. But, uh, you know, even as an actor, you're like, that was such a long day. And you realize, oh, people had to be here two hours, two to three hours before me and at least two to three hours after me. Mm-hmm. And then That's they right. also have to come back tomorrow. I might have just done one day here. That's right. And it's uh, it's inex- I think it's inexcusable. On I think top of the yeah. on top of the covid protocols that they're doing now, yeah. it, it's, you know, people having to come on, come in even earlier mm-hmm. and uh, put themselves at risk. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we support you folks, and uh, a a strike may very well be coming um, and uh, may be much needed. Mm -hmm. Um, All right, everyone. You've been very patient with us. Without further ado, here now is the hilarious, talented, the deliciously sweet and salty (laughs) Jim (laughs) O'Hare. Thank you so much for coming on here and talking with me. Uh, so you came on my show when I was doing a, a web series uh, version of this with Funny or Die. You were such a champ about it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I walk in the room and they go, have you guys seen, uh, what show was it? Um, House of Cards. House of Cards. I said, well, of course. 
And next thing I know, we're making out. So, you know, whatever. <laughs> so, yeah, we exchanged a very passionate kiss um, that was a parody of a scene from that series. Um, you know, the, the web series was all about finding these strange, interesting moments. And uh, and we got some nice write-ups in, in a couple of the blogs. And uh, you were... And totally- I got a, nice, a lot of nice date offers, yeah. Yeah, a lot, a lot of got, guys reached out. It was lovely. We did. We got a lot of great uh, people. Found it very sexy. Our kiss online. They, apparently, they did. Yes, <laughs> unexpected but wonderful result. Um, yes. You know, people. I think in the the articles that got written, you know, I, 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 they were a little surprised because they were more used to you playing the sort of uh, unassuming, sometimes hapless Jerry Gergich on Parks and Rec at the time, uh, but you showed I- I- incredible range. You were quick and mean. <laughs> oh, oh, I was so mean. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but it was great. I, it, you, you, it was fa- just fantastic. Um, Dude, my favorite thing is when I get the chance to, first of all, let me tell you, I'll be Jerry Gergich till the day I die and I'll, I'll go down with a smile on my face because what a sure. gift. Absolutely. But when I get the chance, to do stuff like that, I I mean, I think I was immediately on board. The minute you, you're like, you were you see that was... show, and I was like, yeah, let's do this. So, yeah, <laughs> I, I do love when I get the chance to be a little crazier, uh, a little meaner. I rarely get a cast as a mean guy, and I love playing a mean guy. So I loved it. I, absolutely, I do too. I don't get that. Well, I had an audition for something recently. I got very close to playing uh, in, in something where it would have been a very, very mean character, but uh, not since uh, college, I would say for me, have I had those opportunities oh. to play more of those baddies. Um, now, I just did a film in, in New Orleans and I played a piece of garbage. Just I saw you had posted dude. about this. Yeah. Yeah. What defines, was... what defines rotten in this case? Well, he was so abusive to his daughter, oh, verbally, mentally, yeah. sexually, um, Ooh, boy. just a, a piece of garbage human being, just a terrible, terrible man. And it was uh, very tough because the actress was so lovely, uh, Nikki yeah. Blonsky, and she was wonderful. Oh, yeah. And I had to talk to her ahead of time. I'm like, I got to get this in my head that you're not going to hate me for this. Because some of the stuff I said to her was just horrific. Uh, But she's she's like, Jim, I'm an actor. You're an actor. Let's we're playing characters, and that is exactly what it was. But I will tell you, I rarely go home upset with the character I've played. Yeah, and I went home every night very upset. Yeah, it was tough. Yeah. You know, I think that, well, first of all, just in terms of when you're working with another actor, you you know, and anything uh, has any kind of an intimacy, whether it's uh, even if it's that kind of a sort of familial intimacy that comes with abusive behavior. uh, When you're working with uh, actors, it seems to me that the most important word is trust. Yeah. Do you agree? I would 100%. And she trusted me i trusted her because we also had a physical fight that had to be filmed like we literally physically fought and uh yeah trust is so important uh because number one we're saying terrible things to each other and we're also now physically making movements that could hurt us you know uh, and we were shooting outside on location in 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 um oh my gosh the 
the humidity in New Orleans is something I had never dealt with in my life. Well, I should say, I filmed a movie once in Naples, Florida in August, and I thought that oh was pretty God. bad. Oh, my God. Yeah. But this really took the cake. So, and we're rolling on the ground. I mean, it was a lot. So, yes, you have to trust your partner. Uh, and Nikki is just adorable. And ultimately, we're both very loving people. And yeah. uh, we, we found that in each other, and that made it a lot easier. What is the, what's the name of the film? Do they have a name yet? It's called Bosco, as of now. Uh, based on a true story, uh, basically, I play her father. She gets uh, hooked up with the guy who's in prison, who is she thinks is getting out of prison. He's not. He's escaping. Uh, and again, based on a true story. Uh, and she goes to pick him up, thinking today's the big day, and he's climbing over a wall. Ooh, so it's right. yeah, the moment of what do I do? What do I do? And I won't say too much, but she does what she does uh, anyway. But she's. There's no surprise this is who she's become because of what I've done to her in her life. She has no self-esteem, no self-respect. I have berated her at every corner. I berated her mother, who's now gone. Um, anyway, so, but it's that type of story. It's really, uh, I mean, you never know how things turn out, but it, it was a wonderful script. Well, you know, and it's interesting that you talk about sometimes when you walk away from something, you're, you're, it's, it's, it's not so easy to let go of. And when you are, when you have those, if, the, if it's leaving you with feelings that are unhappy feelings, this is a thing that I think a lot of folks maybe don't, they take an acting class and they've been encouraged to go feel a bunch of stuff like it was some kind of therapy. But in actual yeah. fact, I think it can work the opposite way. Um, you know, sometimes unearthing things that are uh, unsettled inside, it, it doesn't always make you feel, uh, uh, it can leave you with some bad feelings afterwards. Well, I just, for me, um, you know, and this is, you know, good and a bad thing about who I am as a person. I'm too empathetic, uh, you know, because you can be too empathetic, like you have to go on in life and but a lot of things can just you know kill me when i see it whether it's animal related or person related right. whatever so to have these words come out of my mouth to this girl who she's a big girl and i was going down that road and what would make me crazy so mad is who am i look at the size of me and my character is telling her that she's this and she's that i didn't want to, i'm not going to use the terms but every terrible thing you could say to somebody and um so yeah, I'd be driving home like, oh, this just feels so dirty. So I, I thank God that that bothers me because I can't imagine living a life where I could say that to people in my regular life and just go on with my day. Yeah, that's I just don't find it to be human, or at least a decent human. Yeah, um, sure, absolutely. Uh, and are you saying because of, you know, the, you, you talked about your, your own size, is it these are things that you, you've internalized yourself over the years? Of course. Yeah. Oh, yeah. please. Everybody, hit, you know, I have been overweight since my uh, since birth. My mother's still screaming. I mean, she's not over the delivery. I mean, I have been a big, <laughs> oh a big guy. <laughs> she's still not over that damn delivery. Yeah. Uh, my father hated me the rest of my life, the rest of his life, because I destroyed. Anyway, <laughs> uh, but anyway, no. Yeah, I've, I've been a big guy, fat guy, whatever word people like to use. I, I'm kind of comfortable with all of them. 
So certainly I've heard things over the years and I've read things, I've read reviews where right, for right, some reason right. they had to mention my size. Yeah. Now I had what, a question what? about that and I want to get into that because I did, I did read a review from, and I want to talk more about the play, but the, I yeah. read a review of a show that you did in Chicago and yeah, they described you as Ursine, which is something that yeah. I didn't know. I had to look that up and it means bear-like. They also described yeah. you as sexy. So it was, you know, this, <laughs> <laughs> you know, this interesting yeah. thing. Yeah. I mean, but <laughs> the whole question of sexiness and body type seems to be kind of evolving a little bit in a, hopefully in a positive way. Um, but, but it is true that, and particularly in Hollywood, they really will, whether it's a character description or... Um, sometimes what you get called on the street will refer to the way you look before the, the work itself. Sometimes, you know, for me, I I've gotten, I'm very sort of lank. I, lo I look like a fat green bean in a weird <laughs> way. So, you know, I've got comment like nerd cause I, I don't know, I wear the glasses or I sound like Kermit the frog or, you know, I've gotten lurch, <laughs> you know, and, um, Sometimes I think that there's an opportunity for us to play into some kind of a box where at least you feel like you're maybe there's some something that makes you castable, but it can take a toll sometimes if you feel like you're falling into or being stereotyped. Uh, I have had to say to my reps over the years, and I've had, you know, different people, whatever, uh, please don't just look for the audition that says fat or right. slubby or overweight or whatever uh because guess what i am an actor that's and, right uh, uh if it just says doctor within my age range i can do that if it says lawyer within my age range i can do that so right. please don't just look for the word fat or big um, right fat or big are easy i can get those aren't going to be tough auditions to get into let me prove myself and get me into the room and the nice thing over my career has been I, I not always, uh, but many, many times it has worked and I have gotten in the room and I have gotten the gig because yeah. it's about the performance once you're in the room. That's now, right. That being said, there are certainly roles that call for a very specific type of person. Maybe if it's a doctor who also happens to be dating a, you know, a 30 year old model, realistically, unless she's in it for the money, if that's her character, the odds are she's not going to be looking for me. But that's very specific. So, uh, yeah, it's easy to get me in a room where it says fat, big, sloppy. That's easy. Uh, I always get, I always challenge them to get me in the room where it doesn't mention physicality other than age, because age is what it is. Yeah, I do. You know, I've gotten older. Uh, I recently I grew this beard that I have now for the film that I did in New Orleans, and actually people seem to be liking it. So yeah, I'm keeping it for now. <laughs> Who knows? You know how long that. I think lasts, it gives you now. a little bit of a salty dog. You know, like you could do That's some yeah, like get that. you on yeah, a boat yeah, yeah. now, a boat captain. Yeah, you're looking for another kiss, aren't you? I see what's <laughs> going on here. I see what's going on. So I want to ask. <laughs> I want to get back to Chicago now because that's where you're originally from. Is that right? Are you born and raised? Born and raised in the south suburbs, Lansing, Illinois, outside of uh, Chicago on the Indiana border. Uh, but then I lived in Wrigleyville in my 20s for, I don't know, eight or nine years before I headed off to L.A. Okay, so now you were, and you went to Loyola University in Chicago, right? That's yes. Now we have another person, an alum of the school on this season of the podcast, Ira Madison III, who is the host of Crooked's Keep It podcast. He's fantastic. Okay. If you're unaware of him, you should check out Keep It on Crooked Media. 
Um, he yeah. did theater there. My cousin also graduated from their theater program. Um, so, oh, nice. I, I, so I did all, not graduate. They will not be, they, they don't look at, I did not graduate. Oh, you did? Because I, I did not. No, no, no. I went there and this is horribly embarrassing, but I will tell you when I was senior year in high school, you know, you're starting to think about what's next. And I was a pretty good student. So it just made sense. I was going to go to college. Uh, but I didn't have a clue, not a clue what I wanted to do. Nothing. Oh, interesting. So I decided to go to Loyola for accounting. Now, Jim, why did you do that? Well, wow. because I had a couple of buddies who were doing that. That's what I was basing my career on, what my buddies were doing. Uh, and I learned real quick that wasn't going to rock my world. Uh, I, I ended up working at the radio station, and that's kind of what made everything boom, click in my head that, wow, I think there's a bit of a performer bug in there. Uh, and then I went to a, I went and got my uh, broadcast license because in those days you had to do that. And then I became a DJ. So I only did, I think, I think a year and a half at Loyola. And then I went to another college in Michigan for a little bit. So I bounced around. But ultimately, I did not graduate from Loyola. I, I'm sure they don't want me saying I did <laughs> for many reasons. Yes, for many, many reasons. What were some of the, you know, beyond broadcast and radio, um, what were some of your uh, acting inspirations growing up? Now, you've grown up in Chicago. There's, And I want to talk a little bit about Chicago as a theater town. Were you heading yeah. into town to see things growing up or... Was it more about, you know, there were movies you loved or you, you watched a lot of television that, that, that was important to you? What were those, what were those all first inspirations? All television. Yeah, I'm a TV kid. Always was, uh, still am, love television. People ask me many times if you had your druthers, TV or film, theater. Uh, my first answer is love them all. Truly love them yeah. all. But if someone said you get one, you only get one it would be television. Uh, it's since I was a kid, I used to dream about, and this is silly, you know, but you're, you're young and you're whatever. Uh, I had heard about table reads. Yeah. I didn't really know what they were, but I heard that shows did table reads and specifically Saturday night live. I would dream that I was at table reads with uh, John Belushi. I mean, I actually had dreams that we were at these table reads and boy, I was killing it. Let me tell you, I was amazing at these table reads. Um, so there was always this like, wow, wow, would that be unbelievable? What is that like? Never in a million years thinking that is something I would do. We, My family, wonderful family. I was really blessed with this just very safe, Midwest, middle-class, solid mom and dad who took care of us and also let us grow on our, you know, weren't too hovering. And yeah, of course, in, in those days, it was all different. You could say, be back by dinner. And they didn't know where the hell you went off. Latsky kids. You'd come, you'd come home safe. Yeah. It, so we, it, it was a pretty amazing upbringing. And um, so, but no, we didn't do lots of theater. We didn't go downtown much. I did all that as I got older and started right. having my own life. And then I was obsessed with Chicago uh, so I, yeah, it was television. Uh, you're, you're Mary Tyler Moore's your Dick Van Dykes. Yeah. You're Bob Newhart, your Carol Burnett. Oh my God. Right. I mean, Saturday night, all in the family of Newhart, yeah. Carol Burnett, like that's the dream night for me, you know? And so I became obsessed with that. And then as years went on and I got into the business and 
I got to meet some of those people. And, you know, <laughs> uh, one of my most embarrassing moments that will haunt me forever because I was with buddies <laughs> who never let me forget it is I was at a rap party when uh, Mary Tyler Moore hosted Saturday Night Live. Oh, my God. I have I have no trouble talking to him. And what year, what year are we I, talking about? Well, we're talking in the 80s because I think late 80s. Uh, I wasn't even I was doing theater in Chicago and one of the so women, now women you, who you sorry just to oh, help the audience here you had been taking classes I think at Second City right Second City yes and then when I was there I got a group of like-minded people and the six of us formed our own comedy troupe called White Noise right and so uh, we had a guest director come in to handle one of our shows named Christine Zander who was a writer for SNL she's had an amazing career she's Third Rock from the Sun, the 70s show. Oh, yeah. Anyway, she's one of those amazing people still doing it. Um, so anyway, she said, listen, she knew I was obsessed with Mary Tyler Moore. She goes, she's hosting if you guys want to come out. And Elvis Costello was the musical guest. Oh my so it really seemed like what an amazing evening. So we go out there and, you know, we go to the, the after party at some thing near the uh, roller rink in Rockefeller Plaza that whole thing and yeah I'm just blown away this celebrity is there because it's not just the people on the show who shows up to these events it's who's ever in town you know sure. it's Saturday Night Live and so it was really an amazing night but there was Mary Tyler Moore now I have trouble talking to nobody <laughs> I am a chatterbox it's who I am it's who I've always been it right is a deterrent it's also a, a, a wonderful thing but yeah it's across the board so I couldn't go up to her. I just couldn't do it. Wow. I was nervous. And my buddies are like, just do it. Well, what are you doing? She, you're at a party that you're allowed in, which means she knows you're not some crazy stalker. <laughs> Cut to the chase. They go, she's leaving. This is it. So I walk up and I, she's kind of walking at me. I'm walking at her and I just stare at her with this Google grin. A good start. And I couldn't, I, I didn't speak. Oh boy. I didn't speak. Oh boy. And so she looks at me and God bless her. She apparently, from what we could tell, got the impression I had some, perhaps I was a little slow. And so she looks at me with this big smile and she goes, hi, I'm Mary. And oh my I go, gosh. I just shake my head up and down. And she goes, did you want a picture? God bless her. I go, never spoke. <laughs> you just never shook my head. Spoke. Yes. I get next to her. We get the picture. My grin is up to my ears. Uh, but here's where the, I mean, as embarrassing as that was. So she thanks me and she starts walking away. And I blurt out, I am in awe of you. Well, that sentence has been thrown in my face for Aww. 30 years. <laughs> for 30 years, out of nowhere, I will get a text or whatever with one of those idiots saying to me, I am in awe of you because I made such an ass of myself in front of Mary Tyler Moore. I have a tendency to do that too, to be so suddenly quite formal about when something really means something to me. I, I don't, I'm not one of those people where you don't, I, I don't want people to take me seriously all the time. I, I get into a serious mode and I think it becomes right. a little, uh, uh, strange for folks around me because I will say something formal like that. I'm in awe of you. Yeah. Um, what a, what a, what a beautiful thing to say to her though. You know, she was so lovely. And then when I got to work with Dick Van Dyke years later, he was, again, I was all worked up and now I'm on a set 
and we have scenes to like we're going to be together for 10 days right so i can't have that attitude but i did walk up to him and i said mr van dyke i just have to get get this out I know we're going to be spending a lot of time together, but I think you were, I, you know, I, I rambled, rambled, rambled about how wonderful he is because I truly think he's brilliant. Oh, he's the best. And he cuts me off and he goes, oh, no, no, Jim, thank you so much. I'm just a performer. I've seen your work. You're an actor. Ooh. And like, what a gracious, Ooh. lovely, un, I don't know. I don't what know. a lovely so, moment. What a lovely moment. And we had one of my favorite moments of anything I've ever done is uh, in this episode, I got to play, which again, rarely happened, a very bad man, but outwardly, I'm a wonderful guy. Everyone thinks I'm the greatest guy in the world. So you don't want to know that I'm the killer. Got it. I'm a serial killer and I'm doing terrible things to women. And in the show, he figures it out and he comes to my house and I'm barbecuing and we have a scene and my wife comes out and I chat with her and it's all lovey and lovey-dovey. And he, he says to me, I know it's you. And I know he has no proof. So the scene goes on. Yeah. After the scene, the producers came up and were chatting and they said, wow, we had never seen a look like that on Dick's face. Ooh. And I was like, cause typical insecure actor. I go, Oh my God, I can do, what do you need? I can do it different. They go, no, 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 no. You really disturbed him. In a wonderful way. I go, oh, okay, good. That kind of look I'm happy about. Yeah. I thought they meant like, he's like, this guy can't do, he can't pull this off. But apparently I freaked out Dick Van Dyke. And that's one of my greatest moments. Now, that's fantastic. Now, that was that was a show. I'm wondering if that's a show where, did he play a, a doctor maybe? And his son is on a the A doctor story. slash detective. Right, yes. right. Yes, what was the name yes, of that yes. show? I remember that show. Uh, diagnosis murder. There we go. Yeah. 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 Um, and again, it was rare. They got me in because it was a guy you would least suspect to be the murderer. And then it turns right. out. And then at the very end of the episode, spoiler alert for Dr. <laughs> diagnosis murder people. Um, Jack Klugman shoots me dead in an Ooh. elevator. Oh my yes. gosh. It was, Fantastic. It was awesome. Another guy I loved because of, of, uh, um, Oh, come on, him and Tony Randall. Uh, 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 the odd couple. The odd couple, you know. So, yeah. So, believe me, there was the, that was an amazing 10 days. Now, so I want to go back to Chicago just for a second here, because I did, and I told you I had read this review of something you'd done. This was a play that came out of your sketch group, The White Noise. It was, uh, it was this is 1990. You started in a one-act black comedy which became a bit of a cult favorite called stumpy's gang a comic yeah. mutation yeah uh can you talk a little bit about this play yeah pat cannon uh he goes by patrick in los angeles patrick cannon wrote it he was one of our six people and he had done it years earlier with somebody else and anyway he says to me one day he goes i got this thing i wrote it's off the wall it's nuts I think you would be good for this. So I read the play. It's he underplayed it. It's way off the walls. It's way crazy. Yeah. It's about a janitor who works at a um, a bio disposal, a, a bio a, a genetics factory, right? Where they're figuring out new drugs and everything. But at these places, mistakes are made, and in this case, they turn into little creatures. Now, my job as the janitor is to dispose of them because they are not going to help the world. 
So I am supposed to incinerate them. Uh, my character was raised by a Wagnerian mother, opera-loving Crazo, a, a strict German woman who, you know, was just nuts. And uh, she did terrible things. He was raised, it was not good. But he was also raised on an old show, which is a legit show that was out there called Kukla, Fran, and Ollie. And it was this woman with these two puppets. So basically what happens in this play is two, two or three of the mutants that I'm supposed to incinerate, I train to be in my own kitty show, my own puppet show. Right. But, you know, these are mutants. So they spew blood and they cry and they do things. And so Stumpy, it's called Stumpy's Gang, is what I called my kid show that I created in the basement of the genetics factory. And it was wild. I was obsessed with Twinkies. Every show, I ate eight Twinkies. Oh, my God. Literally, oh my God. eight Twinkies. Every show, I can't even think about a Twinkie. Um, <laughs> also, and I was in this one-piece janitor outfit, and I would swear the audience would be betting on what shape the sweat marks were going to take, which country. Or I always <laughs> used to joke, they're betting on, is this the night he dies? Because it was a very physical role. I danced crazy dance i um a lot of killing and blood and yeah incinerator i jump into an incinerator it was a wild wild show but all of a sudden it becomes this crazy must-see show in chicago because it's so out there and one of the reviews i forget which one it was but one of them said talking about how people say things one of the quotes out of many were Jim O'Hare seems like a nice enough fellow, but what he's doing on stage, he should be embarrassed to do in the privacy of his own home. Ooh, now that's, that's a quote. That's exciting. Yeah, well, there was that's, another there was another critic, I think this was the Chicago Reader critic, who at one point says, I am a 42-year-old army veteran, <laughs> and I had nightmares <laughs> after seeing this play. <laughs> I love that. I thought but that was I will fantastic. tell you this, and even the reviewers who were horrified, they almost all by the end of the article said- They come around, yeah. We can't, we can't stop talking about it. That's right. Because there's so many levels to this play, so like- the mother and the genetics company, what are they? And I mean, there's really, if you, and the funny part would be Pat, you know, Patrick would read these reviews and go, I didn't think about that at all because yeah, they're going, right. it looks like the writer was thinking about Nazi Germany. Right, this kind of socio-political, yeah. Yes, yes. And he's like, nope, never thought about Nazi Germany, but okay, <laughs> if that's where they want to go with it. So, but the show did so well that in the meantime, so we do the normal run, but then the theater, we had to leave because they another show was coming in. So they asked us to do midnight. And it really is a mm. brilliant midnight show. If you come in sure. with a few drinks or just a few whatever, uh, you are really going to love that show. So we did that for a while. And then we moved it to another theater. It just kept going and going. In the meantime, I was doing legit theater at other places. Yeah. So I would do some nights, three shows in one wow. night. I would bounce oh from theater to theater. And the one night I knew there was magic was I'm pulling up to the new, to the theater that I'm going to do the midnight show. I've just come from the other Royal George in Chicago to do, um, what did I do? Uh, uh, Vampire Lesbians of Sodom. So oh, yeah. I from there. Yeah. I come here and there's a line out the door. Oh my God. Awesome. Like, What's that about? 
And I realize it's for us. And then I also see that some people are dressed like my character. <sighs> and I thought, I think that's a good thing. I think that's a really, really good thing. And so that's how, you know, when you're young and you're an actor, the talk is you always LA. What's LA like? You have actors who come and go and you quiz them. What's it like? What's it like? Yeah. Uh, so we, you know, and everybody pilot season, what's a pilot season? I want right. to try that. So uh, Pat and I talked and we said, you know, this is just crazy enough for LA. Maybe we didn't know much about LA. But we both wanted to try it. And I certainly wanted to try a pilot season. So we did a fundraiser in the days before fundraising. Kickstarters. Yeah, right. Kickstarters. We did it through phone calls and mail and whatever. And friends and family. And somehow we raised $40,000. And we I put mean, it the up 1990. in the Oh, my gosh. Yes, early 90s. Yeah. We raised 40. I, I believe it was 40. I could be off. But around that number. And... Uh, we brought it out to LA, put our lives in a six, 17 foot Hertz Penske truck. Yep. I mean, it was crazy. It was what you do when you're much younger than I am now. Um, so we moved to LA and uh, the show and Pat and I didn't know anybody here. So we were trying to figure it all out, but we got a publicist in the theater had heard of us because of the reviews in Chicago, but they were afraid because of all the blood. So we had to like put special <laughs> stuff down in the theater and right, on the seats right. and people had to wear plastic oh, things. So it was crazy. We had a big giant Twinkie you spun to buy your ticket. So maybe you get a free ticket. Maybe you get a t-shirt. Um, so oh my it was God. crazy. And thankfully, the same thing happened in LA. Uh, and it became a show to see. When I first got here, I started doing mailings for agents. Right. You know, that's all you could do. Mail, give a headshot. Put a stamp, move on. That's right, yeah. I got no traction at all. Nobody called to set up an interview, nothing. Now, Stumpy's Gang opens up. We open in September. The plan was to run through mid-October. Yeah. We ended up running through the end of February because uh, it just kept going and going. Fantastic. And then all of a sudden, these people who wouldn't answer my mail were calling me for meetings. Not so amazing. The they, send their, they were sending their assistants to go see it. The assistant would come back and say, well, it is kind of a crazy show. He's kind of crazy in it, but it's you know apparently good or whatever. And next thing you know, I have agents and a manager. I mean, it really, it changed everything. It really changed everything. Well, that's, that's fascinating. That's the story that I was curious about because this sounded a little, because people do have this conversation about how do you want to go out to L.A.? And, you know, some people will tell you, don't go out to L.A. unless you know people there. Don't go out to L.A. unless you're going because you have a job that you're going to do out there. And so I was wondering a little bit, was this the show that brought you out there? Um, and what a great way to to get into L.A. and get into the business and get noticed that way. And it is so true that, you know, when you do these mailings to people, you're going to mail you'll mail to the same people that will ignore you, but then they'll have it. You'll sit in a meeting with them. They won't have any memory of when you ever mailed to them before, you know? Of course. Well, even when Parks and Recreation started and, you know, all of a sudden we're this, you know, kind of cool show that people are watching and whatever. Yeah. Yeah. All of a sudden people who might not have had a, a lot of interest in me earlier, all of a sudden, <laughs> Hey Jim, you know, Bob, love your show. You know, and I know that's showbiz. I know it's any yeah. business, really. I guess it's not just show business, but this is an example of all of a sudden 
hey, buddy, how, we should grab a drink. You know, it, it's funny how that can change. Sure. <laughs> um, so that you did. You went on to recur and guest star on shows like Friends, Boston Legal, Malcolm in the Middle, Star Trek Voyager, Third Rock from the Sun, and ER. You got your first series regular role, it sounds like, on Comedy Central's uh, series Strip Mall. Yes. At what age? Uh, at what age would you say were you fully making your living acting? How long did it take? I, yeah. Here's the thing. I got out here late, according to some people, 32 years old, <clears throat> and I can tell you, since the day I landed in LA, 1994, August 4th, I just had my 27th anniversary. <laughs> uh, I've never done anything else. I've made it my oh, that's living amazing. as an actor since the day I got here. Now. Some years, whoo, how did I get by? I couldn't tell you. But thankfully, the years that are good, you know, when you do work in LA, the money is good, you know, when right, you're working, right. it's really good. So the years that would be good would help the years that weren't so good. But I also got out here with a connection to a commercial agent who I am still with 27 years later. That's great. And so I got out here, got a national commercial pretty quick a lot of lucky breaks but then again also sometimes i'm like oh damn how is how am i going to pay rent this month and then a check would come in a residual check or a commercial would happen so yeah i'm proud to say i i've, I've never i've never had any other job other than acting since 1994 august 4th that's so cool that's so that's so yeah. great what an enviable uh uh track record and then so and then of course you joined the cast of parks and recreation as the beloved jerry gergich known also to fans of the show as larry terry and gary uh it's been written about that you originally auditioned for the role of ron swanson which of course went to nick offerman i was curious did they bring i'm sorry it went to who <laughs> who I, that name let's, is familiar let's just call him mustache Move on. I, yeah, whatever. <laughs> so I'm curious about this. Did you, did they have you come back in and read for Jerry or did they just cast you? No, no, no. So I get the audition for, um, you know, for at the time, the untitled Amy Poehler project. Yeah. And, you know, I, at this point, I've been around a lot of years. I get it. I know how it all works. They're not going to give Jim O'Hare, one of the co-leads on the untitled Amy Poehler project. But I tell young actors this all the time. Any actor should know this, but I believe it. You never know who's going to be in a room. You never know what mm -hmm. other projects they're working on. In my mind, these are the guys from The Office. I want to do a guest spot on The Office. So right. I, I never walk into a room unprepared. I just don't. And it doesn't mean I nail it all the time. Sometimes I can be totally prepared and screw it up like you can't believe. But I guarantee I went there prepared. Yeah. Uh, and so that's what happened here. And my thought was, I just want these guys to like me. It's Greg Daniels, Mike Shore. And I want them to like me because they do other shows and now they're about to do this show. So yeah, down the road, give Jimbo a, you know, a guest they, spot or something. Yeah, they call it, sometimes I've heard people, they'll say book the room. Book the room. I, actually, that's a, I have never heard that term and I love that. I'm going to use that. Consider that, you know what, for now on, let's say that I made that up. Let's go with that. <laughs> oh, so there you go. My... Yeah, of course. Well, so thank as you. As I that. always say, I wanted to book the room. Yes, <laughs> I've always said that. No, but anyway, so I left the room, and apparently, you know, I did my version of Ron Swanson, whatever that was. Um, and you know, this the thought of anyone other than Nick, you know, in, in no world does it make sense. So, and I know Nick was always their guy, as he should have been. So, anyway, like I don't know, two weeks later, 
I get a call from my agent. They said, Jim, they want you to uh, read again for another role on the Untitled Amy Poehler Project uh, called Jerry. Um, you know, do you want to go in? Sure. So I go in, I get to the, to the you know, waiting room and it's when you realize they don't know what they're looking for because there's a big guy, there's a little guy, there's a tall okay. guy, there's a short guy, there's a black guy, there's a white guy, there's, you know, which when you walk into that situation, many times that fuels me because they haven't labeled it yet, which means it's okay that I'm a fat guy right now because they don't know that they don't want a fat guy. You know, okay. like, it hasn't been labeled yet. So, because uh, sometimes I'll walk into an audition and there's all of the same people and then me. And, you know, one of these things is not like the other, you know? Okay. And again, but again, I, I don't dislike that because it's like, okay, okay, let's let now see what the big guy does with this role. So anyway, I go in, I do it. We have such a fun conversation away from the audition. And they were very honest. They said, we kind of just threw these sides together for those who don't know, sides are audition material. Right, right. So um, we kind of just threw it together, whatever. So I do it. We chat, chat, chat. We had some people. I knew Carell in Chicago. So, you know, we had that oh, you connection. Did. And it, yeah, we actually- Wait a minute. Last... You knew Carell, Steve Carell. Yeah. Oh, I that was Steve a question Carell. I was going to ask you because, you know, I just recently was listening to Robert Smigel was on Marin and he was talking about his days in Chicago and he was talking about meeting a young Bob Odenkirk and, you know. Yeah. So you knew Steve Carell back in the second city. The last voice job I did in Chicago was with Carell. And for some reason, I feel it was Miller Lite, but I could be wrong. I know it was a beer of some sort, but he was heading off. I was going to be heading off. Uh, I mean, we weren't hanging around buddies, but I knew Steve. You had auditions, you chat, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So uh, we had that in common. And we were, I think they were feeling me out for, is this guy quick? Is he funny? You know, this is what they were trying to get. Yeah. So another two weeks go by and, you know, the nature of auditions, they come and go. And so now again, my, just, to, sorry, just to jump in quick. So what do you mean by they have a conversation? This is happening in the audition room or y'all went for a stroll. What do you mean? No, no, no. In the audition room. All right. We're just okay, chatting. I've An done interview. the audition and, and now we're just BSing and laughing about whatever and talking about whoever and that kind of stuff. So then I leave and you have to let auditions go because... <laughs> You know, you'd blow your mind up if you obsessed about every audition, yep. which actors do. I've done it myself, but sure. it's not good. But I just let it go thinking, okay, good. You're going to, you're going to get to audition for these shows. They, they liked you. You're going to get a chance to be on either the office or this Amy show. Uh, two weeks later, we get the call and they offer me Jerry. And the weird part was, and I'm not, I, when I tell the story, I make sure not, I'm not knocking my agents. Because their initial thought was maybe I shouldn't do it. And oh, wow. they, they came from a place of concern because the show was very honest with them. And they said, listen, we don't know what's happening with these background characters. And it might just mm, feel like right. they're just extras. And, you know, Jim's been around a lot of years. Uh, and so they were very honest. About so that was it. originally age, what they call a, a recurring co-star sort of a thing. It was, they didn't know what it, to be honest, yeah. they didn't know what it was. They, they really didn't know. They said it'll happen week to week. We've been given six episodes because uh, there was no pilot for parks. They were just given six episodes and told to start shooting. Yeah. So they didn't know. They really didn't know. And my agents out of concern for me, because at that point, believe me, there's nothing wrong with being an extra, but at that point in my career, 
I was doing guest star. I wasn't even doing co-star anymore. It was right. just guest star work. So um, anyway, but to me, it was such a no-brainer because I'd already fallen in love with The Office and I've seen what's happened to Kevin and Phyllis. Right, and another great ensemble and, show. Yeah. I mean, Oscar, it, it was, for me, it was a no-brainer to take that gamble. Yeah. And if they want me to sit around and pay me guest star money, okay. If that's what they want, if it turns out that it didn't play out, I will hopefully have made some nice inroads with these amazing, amazingly talented writers and people. Yeah. Uh, and so that's how it happened. And apparently what solidified my life on Parks was two things. One was after we shot the six and I ended up in every one of them. Yeah. But like me and Retta, who plays Donna, mm -hmm. yep. um, you know, we weren't regular. So we were, we didn't have trailers at that time. We were just like in these dressing rooms and, so we bonded pretty quick, not knowing what was happening to our lives. But at the end of the six episodes, they were doing some editing and they needed some uh, promo stuff. And nobody was in town except for Amy. And they said, they called me and said, would Jim do some improv stuff with uh, Amy with some kids in a forest? Anyway, cut to the chase. <laughs> I go, I do that. And apparently one of the producers said to the other one while they were watching us play together doing improv, he'll be fine. This will work out. Oh, so great. That, that solidified me. And then the you had episode, a big episode, I think. And then, well, and, and the, the episode where we uh, we were finding dirt on each other. And then we so realized this was, that I've been. This is this was called Park Park Safety. Right. And this was in season two. No, no, no. That's oh, there's a different episode. episode. All right. Got it. Totally okay. different episode. Yeah. Which was funny because some of the office people are like, how did you get an episode in season two? Like, I don't know. I think it's, <laughs> let me have an episode. Um, but no, there was an earlier when uh, Louis C.K. was playing Amy's oh, boyfriend playing, for a couple yeah, the of cop. episodes. Right. The cop. And we were finding, we were playing a game in the office, finding dirt on each other. And of course, Jerry didn't want to play. He thought it was, could be hurtful. And this is when Paul Schneider was on the show. He played Mark Brandan. Right. Right. And so, I find out that he's got two unpaid parking tickets. Well, who gives a crap? So, but I say to him, like, oh, I got yeah. something. I go, oh yeah. And uh, how about somebody who has two unpaid parking tickets? <laughs> and he's like, oh, really? I heard your adoptive mother smokes pot. <laughs> and he can see that I'm horrified. And he gets concerned and he goes, you didn't know she smoked pot? And there's a pause and I go, I didn't, I didn't know, know I was adopted. was adopted. Yeah. That's when they realized that's who Jerry is. And yeah. that the guy who came up with that was Dan Gore, who to this oh, yeah. day, one of my favorite people, he then co-created Brooklyn Nine-Nine with right. Ed Shore. Right. Anyway, right. another genius writer. And he was with us for a lot of years. So yeah, those were my two moments that solidified my life at Parks and Recreation. So then they, so at what point did they up you to a series regular? Well, uh, mid-season two, the negotiations happened, and then Retta and I started as regulars in season three. That's so great. But we knew it was happening in mid-season two. Yeah. yeah. And um, so now I understand, <laughs> I understand that you're all on a Parks and Rec family text chain. Is that right? Yes, we are. <laughs> oh, my God, yeah. And actually, did you hear that? Are you going to tell me about the Rashida story? No, but I was going to ask you just generally, how drunk does that text chain get? It's the craziest text chain, and it's constant. <laughs> what is the Rashida like, story? To this day later. So last year, I think it was last year, Amy and Rashida, and again, I, I, if I'm getting some of the facts wrong, it doesn't change the story of what happened. 
Uh, I think it was Vanity Fair, but I could be wrong. But anyway, they're both being put on lie detectors and they get to ask each other questions. Oh yeah, I've seen these videos, right. Yes, so they're doing it, Rashida and Amy. So it's going on and now it's Rashida's turn to ask Amy a question. And she goes, Amy, is it true that there is a parks and recreation text chain that I am not on? Oh, shit. Yes, and it cuts to Amy and she's just like, Oh my God. And she goes, yes, it's true. Oh my God. But she has her explanation, which is so valid because we love Rashida. Rashida. (laughs) Um, What happened was we didn't start the chain until they were gone so that we could all stay. Because we went another, they- they, A few other seasons. Like two seasons after they were gone. So it started when they weren't there. Rashida and so who? Now, Rob, Rob Lowe? And Rob Lowe. So Got now it. Rashida is very well ensconced in the <laughs> uh, in the text chain. But yes, the other day we were going back and forth about some silly thing. And Aziz goes, oh, look at this. And he's on a, a like what looked to be like a gondola-like thing in, in Copenhagen, like on a river yeah, or something. Yeah, like, that tracks. It's just crazy stuff. And then there's, you know, Pratt, who's just, one of the funniest people that's ever walked the planet and the stuff he comes up with, which I won't repeat. Uh, but anyway, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. There was a special bond on that show. And I, as you can see, I've been on millions of shows over the years. Uh, the only other time I saw something like, like what we have was on friends. And I only did one oh, week yeah. with them. Right. But I got to tell you, they were tight. I saw it. Yeah. And I loved it because I was a fan of the show. Yeah. So I love when it's real. Because, you know, you see these actors on talk shows and you go, oh, we're a big family. And I'm thinking, you dumbass. No one was talking. I was there. You're lying. I was on your show and nobody was talking to anybody. Yeah. yeah. There's a um, lot of pretense so in Hollywood. For there's sure. a lot of pretense. Yeah. So on Parks, it, we became the show that actors heard about that they wanted to get on because of the atmosphere. Other yeah. actors wanted to be on it. Directors wanted to direct us. Um yeah, it was a gift, truly a gift. Seven years and 126 episodes, a real gift. Unbelievable. So now, yeah. uh, so during parts of the lockdown, we saw a lot of, uh, many a town hall <laughs> in which <laughs> local citizens have been complaining about microchips and becoming magnetic from a COVID vaccine. <laughs> Seems that feel like they were lifted right out of Parks and Rec. Does it ever stun you? Yes. Or, or do you feel like the, sh- the show you were on pre- prepared you well for these strange conspiracy theories that can emerge in parts of our country well people have to realize they did their research before parks and rec was written (laughs) the the craziness on parks and rec is based on reality so (laughs) i i guess i was kind of prepared are they ripped from the headlines some of them some of them ripped from headlines some of them just when they went out and met from different parks departments they would get stories that things were said to them crazy just craziness i Part of me had truly hoped that wasn't our real world, but then, you know, we saw COVID and apparently you can stick things to your head and your face and you, because of a <laughs> shot, one lunatic, and then, you know, not to get crazy, but then a lunatic in the White House. I mean, just, you know, I could go on and on. Um, so, but it is what it is. And people are allowed their, their views, which I'm a big believer in that, no matter how crazy they happen to be. So I wanted to say this uh, also, uh, a congratulations is in order because since I met you, you've also become an Emmy winner. Uh, somehow that happened. I'm still not sure how, but yes, it sits <laughs> in, my, in my dining room. 
So this is, congratulations on that. Now this is for outstanding guest Thank performance you. in a drama series for The Bold and the Beautiful. It was uh, bold and beautiful, just so you know. <laughs> it was both. Um, where did this come from? I mean, the the uh, were, I, I was curious where you offered the role, first of all. Yeah, the thing about Parks, uh, you know, it's changed so many things. One of them is uh, I get a lot of offers now, so which okay. is lovely. There's nothing. Now, that being said, happy to audition. I auditioned for Steven Spielberg a couple of weeks ago. Oh, happy to do awesome. it, Mr. Spielberg. Awesome. <laughs> you know, ha happy to do it. Uh, my agents all know I am always ready to fight for a role, but there's also nothing nicer than getting the call like, hey, they want to know if you're available to do ABC. So we get this call and I had never done a soap opera, so I didn't know anything about it. And they said they want, it's kind of like a stunt casting. They're going to take you from Parks and uh, uh, Monica Haran from uh, Everybody Loves Raymond. Oh, You're going to okay. play this kind of right. wacky couple. It sounded fun. And plus I'd never been on a soap. So I wanted to see what that was. So I do it and I don't, I, it was fun and scary and they work so hard. Yes, they do. Such a yeah. short amount of time. And they deserve all the credit in the world. And anyway, all this kind of stuff. So um, I, I, we do it. And it's, um, we did like in two days, we shot like five episodes or four. However it works. It's pretty amazing how quickly they work. So life goes on. And in the meantime, I get, they, uh, it did well. It got a good response and they asked us back. Well, in the meantime, I'm heading to Chicago for something and I get a phone call and it, uh, hello. And I said, hi, this is something Bell from Bold and the Beautiful. And th that day, the I knew uh, Emmy announcements were coming out, but never in a million years thinking anything. And he said, I want to congratulate you on your Emmy nomination for our show. And I said, oh, my gosh. Uh-huh. I said, hold on a second, because I'm thinking it's one of my, you know, idiot your friends. Your buddies, yeah. Just screwing me over. So, I am know, in awe of you was going to be on that. Thanks, note, thank that you. Call. Exactly. Exactly. And some of those poker guys were at the I'm in awe of you moment. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, so anyway, I Google real quick while I have them on hold. And there it is. Jim O'Hare nominated. So it was crazy. I, to be honest, I wasn't even going to go because uh, a friend of mine was opening a show that night and I wanted to see it. And I said to CBS, I, I, you know, I had this other commitment and they said we'd really would mean a lot to us if you could go you could take off you know after it would just mean a lot of good representation for the show yeah but never because i thought i have no chance this isn't you know yeah so because in this category they do men and women so i said okay i'll do it and then i'll leave and then i'll go to the show so i even say to my driver you know they give you a driver it's all lovely you know you're in your tux and you get your free gifts and sure because i had been to the emmys you know many times many times yeah and yeah it was awesome um so I say to the driver, listen, I hear that my category is going to be announced at 525. So even if there's some delay, I'll probably be back out here at 545. And you can head me over to the because they give you the guy for the night. They don't care what you do. He's like, OK, great. You don't care. So I'm sitting in there. And uh, in this category, men and women are both in the category. So they start showing clips. You know, it, it was um, oh, Lisa Gibbons and um, uh, Larry King were the giving this. Oh, yeah. This, Oh, category man. yeah so whatever they go through all the clips and i'm just the camera you know the, the camera runs down the aisle so it can get your reaction when you know and they so larry king goes and the winner is uh, jim o'hare and i swear to you 
swear to you, if you watch the clip online, you can see it. There's this pause because when, what went through my head was, wow, that is so familiar. That oh my name God. is familiar. That's all that went through my head. And then I'm getting poked by the girl who's from the show who's sitting next to me. And she goes, oh my God, oh my God. And then I realized, oh, hell. Now I got to walk up there. And I promise you, I hadn't thought, I hadn't given two seconds to the thought of what I would do if I won. Because I didn't think it could possibly happen. So I'm walking up there and I'm walking up there and like, you're an idiot. You're an idiot. Don't trip. 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 Because the fat guy falling is all that'll be on the news. Oh, man. So I knew I didn't want to fall. So I got up there and I really just had this moment in my head where I said, just talk from your heart. What do you, you don't know what's going on. So I give, you know, I get the handshake and the hug from Lisa and from, uh, uh, you know, Larry King and then there everybody is. So what I did was, and I, this did come from the heart. I put the trophy down and I said, this is for all of the soap opera actors. And I just did this like a bow down. Oh, that's great. Because they work so hard what they do in a day i do in a week right you know what i mean like they're getting 60 pages in a day that's right i I was blown away by them still blown away by them um so anyway and then i think you know my reps and all that kind of so i got through it but i couldn't go to my opening party because to the play i was going to because i had to do press they make you go through the line i was there all night so and it's, it was lovely. It's it used to sit on my desk. And then I went out of town to do theater for three months. And when I came back, oh, my cool. friends had, my friends had paid to have a podium with a glass case. And Aww. it was sitting in the glass case in my uh, dining room, which it still is. Oh, day. that's so sweet. That's so yeah, wonderful. Very sweet. So very now you're, people. you are, you're busier than ever these days. Uh, with good. Yeah. Re- recurring roles on multiple series and upcoming films. Um, I'm curious, do you allow yourself vacations from work? Um, yeah, I, uh, my favorite place in the whole world is Maui. I go there once a year though. I was there the, I was there the January before the shutdown. So I was there January of 20 was my last time. But I also, like, just now I was in South Carolina. Um, I, I, I just make time, whether it's by extending my trip to okay. see things and to go places. I always do that. Yeah. So this was South Carolina. In, in uh, New Orleans, when I was there, I went on, you know, I figured out my dates. Here's my work dates. Here's my free dates. And so I would do stuff there. So I, I try to have time wherever I'm at. And if I go to somewhere really amazing that I've never been, I'll tack on days at the end. If I, depending on my schedule, I'll yeah. tack on days because the production company, they don't care when you fly. They right. bought your ticket. They don't care. I'll pay for a couple of hotels, you know, on my own for a couple of days. Uh, and I'll do so that kind of thing. And also I'm very blessed. I have a, a lovely home and I have a, you know, a home in Palm Springs. So I, it's all good. I have no, it's all good. Yeah. Well, uh, Jim, I just want to say thank you so much for doing this. Um, you know, I had you on this web series, this silly web series, and I was planning on <laughs> poking fun at the 
the seeming mundanity of your character on Parks and Rec, <laughs> and perhaps to you know investigate where some of your vulnerabilities might lie. But you came prepared to play, and you drove the pace of the comedic interview. <laughs> Always prepared to play, my friend. Which is why we ended up making out. <laughs> <laughs> and furthermore, and I, I didn't get to tell you this at the time in so many words because I was sort of in the character playing this character, but, uh, but I would kill for your career. And you oh. are a brilliant performer. Um, thank you for being so kind to me. And, uh, and I wish you continued success. You, and I got to say, you and your wife, that was such a fun night. You guys, I haven't seen her lately. You don't age, which of course pisses me off. Uh, no, but I mean, you guys were just such a great couple and, and it was, uh, that was really fun. And uh, I, 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 I try to every day be grateful for the blessings of my career because I know how tough it is. And I've had the tough times and I am grateful that there, these days there's more work than less work. And uh, I know how, yeah. I just know how fortunate I am. So thanks for saying that. I appreciate it. Great to see you. You too. Mwah, mwah, mwah. <laughs> oh God, here comes the tongue. <laughs> well, there you have it. My conversation with Jim O'Hare. A big thank you again to Jim for doing it. I hope you all enjoyed it. Before we move on to our second interview, I'm going to take another opportunity to ask you all to please subscribe to this podcast wherever you're getting your podcast from today. We've got more incredible interviews with Sarah Levy, Joe Tippett, Alicia Oxy, Pej Vidat, Madison Shepard, Mapawana Makia, and Shelley Bala coming in the next few weeks. Remember to subscribe to our Patreon to get all our extras with Chris Pine, Melissa Fumero, Baron Vaughn, Chantal Tui, Patrick Adams, Kevin Avery, Jim O'Hare, and more. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash things are going great for me. And you can check out our link tree to get some of our merch. Our link tree is on our Instagram page at things are going great for me. If you like what you hear so far, please give us those five star ratings. Leave us a nice comment. We so appreciate all your ratings, reviews, and kind words, and we want to keep bringing you these great episodes. Next up is Joan Ford. We talk about her experience at film school at Emerson College. We also talk about comedy and inclusivity at the big comedy schools, her all-trans sketch team, Red and Yellow, her hilarious sketches on the Twitch platform, and the virtues of the Gremlins movies. Here now is the funny, kind, and brilliant Joan Haley Ford. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I haven't seen you in a while. I think last time I saw you maybe was at a, a little show at uh, at UCB Sunset. That's possible. Yeah, I think like our, our paths crossed a couple times at UCB. Um, but that's about But Even that would have been a pretty long time ago. That place doesn't exist anymore. I know. Yeah, I want to talk about that. How uh, how has your how did your pandemic go? Um, I, I was relatively fortunate, uh, as far as I think pandemic people went, I, I, I was employed through most of it. Um, 
And yeah, and that was about it. Like I, I worked through, I worked through the pandemic. I moved it, which allowed me to, I moved into a slightly bigger apartment dur- uh, during that. Nice. Um, I had my dog to keep me company. So in general, I, you know, I, I wasn't like earth, I wasn't like life changing and nothing earth shattering happened to me, but I was just like very fortunate. I, I feel very happy. Oh, that's great. Now, yeah. you were you were very kind uh, to help me with a web series version of this show. Uh, it was a very different tone. It was jokey and confronting. Yeah. Um, and well, the I think ser- Funny yeah, Guy paid me, too. So it wasn't it wasn't all kindness, <laughs> but I did have fun. <laughs> but considering the rates, the funnier die paid editors. Yeah, actually, I was, actually, it was pretty kind. It basically was charity. Yeah, and, uh, basically, basically. That, but that's, did- that goes for anyone at funnier die, at funnier die. Yeah, it gave me my first few meetings over at Funny or Die when they were in their um, original location. It was just this big house over in East Hollywood uh, before they got bought. It felt like a bunch of kids running the place. Yeah. Wasn't there like a slide in the house? There was, um, yes, and I, even that I don't think was their original location. Like, I think their, like, a very original location was, like, I remember it being, like, at a strip mall near a Burger King, like, somewhere in, somewhere deep in, like, Hollywood. But <laughs> then I think that's, but that was, like, you know, that was super early days. But then their first, like, official office w- was what you're talking about, that, that like, c- little complex in... It was off of Melrose, I remember, and, yes, yeah. they did have a slide. It was a beautiful house. Yeah, it was. I, it was very nice. I, I felt like people were sleeping there. I mean, may, I, I mean, I definitely did... My, like, not at that place, but I definitely did my overnighters at Funny or Die, so, so not... would definitely be a possibility. Uh, it was very exciting going over there to drop off a hard drive. You 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 were working there very early on. What what was it like in the beginning? Was it exciting? Uh, it was exciting. I mean, you know, I was never a um, like full time employee. I was always like kind of like brought on uh, freelance for projects, um, which you know I never felt like entirely like a part of that funnier die family. Uh, but it was fun. You know, it was like there was a lot of like. You know, I, I worked there f- for a couple years, even though it was just freelance, I would be there a lot. And, you know, there was like a fun, you know, it was like fun, like startup energy, a lot of really yeah. cool, like, like up and coming comedic voices doing like really like with a platform to do like really weird, like original things. And then, you know, every once in a while, like every few days, it'd be like, oh, Jim Carrey's in the in the break room dressed as yeah. Santa Claus. And yeah, that, that was a cool. That was a cool energy to be around. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, I would say you can tell me your thoughts on this, but I would say you and I experienced sort of the beginning of the democratization of the digital sketch period where like people were throwing crazy ideas online. The the Stella sketches were very popular. Um, I think that's a book maybe that somebody should write eventually. Oh, absolutely. I do think. Yeah, just kind of the that those early like late 2000s, early 2010s. Uh, yeah, online comedy boom. Uh, it's like an interesting and and kind of discuss figuring out like seeing how all like a lot of those voices like kind of transitioned into or became voices of you know the bigger comedic voices of our you know the way like you know Donald like Donald Glover got his like got his start in um, Derek comedy. That's um, right. I think that's all, those would all be like it, like all interesting little things to trace. But yeah, like kind of I think we both saw like kind of like the dem- were there for the democratization of it and then. Uh, uh, like the corporatization, the corporate of it, takeover, yeah, which arguably I think is kind of w- one of the things that kind of like killed it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
do you do you, uh, do you watch a lot of sketch on platform or like what's your relationship with TikTok, for example? What do you think um, of the comedy that's being put out online in on platforms like those social media platforms? I don't have a huge uh, relationship with. I wouldn't say I have a huge relationship with TikTok. I'm not on. I don't know. I'm not on TikTok a lot. I feel like may as much as I try to to, to key into you know the younger uh, sensibilities and where the younger people are putting their stuff. Like I just never like really like locked on to like gotten engaged with uh, TikTok as a platform. I am very engaged with uh, Twitch. Twitch I yeah. love. And I think there's a lot of interest, like in, you know, there's like a lot of interesting, weird content coming out of Twitch these days that I absolutely love. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of where my current online sensibilities lie. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about Twitch. You know, um, so you you have a you have a following on there, and you do delightful sketches and talk thank shows and things you. like that. Thank well, um, It feels like the thing. The one thing I don't understand. I want to. I don't understand Twitch in this sense. You, okay. It looks like you're using a lot of fun editing on your series and sketches, but Twitch is live. So how does it work? Do you pre-program all the editing? No, I mean, uh, not really. You, I mean, I guess, I guess technically you do, but you do. Uh, so, I mean, I'll show this to you right now because it's uh, I can. The they won't the audience won't be able to see it, but like you get one of these things called like a stream, like a stream deck. This is as far as I can show it to you right now. But it's like all oh, you pre-program all these little buttons. So you get this. It's like it's basically like a mini keyboard that ha- that has all these like buttons pre-programmed into it. So whenever you hit one, it may it makes like a pre-planned kind of edit for you. Amazing. And that's how you can kind of jump from. You know, see, like you, you technically like jump from like scene to scene. Yeah, yeah. Well, it looks. I mean, the result is really fun, and it has a. I mean, some of the stuff that I've seen that you're doing on there has a kind of. Am I saying it right? Like cable access, kind of like vintage '90s kind of feel. That's what I like. Yeah, like I, I, I. That's what I kind of love about it. Um, it is kind of yeah, like it is kind of like the rebirth of the the cable access era where anyone can kind of make like, like any show they want um, at any kind of like pr- price point they want. And it just, it could be like very like weird and yourself. And I mean, you know, I, I don't know. I don't like, I don't know how like involved you were like at like UCB or just like the comedy scene in general, like pre pandemic. But you know, one of the things I find, I, I kind of like, I think the things that really attracted me to Twitch is, you know, I, I loved my time at UCB, but you spent so yeah. much of that time, so much of your creative energy, like being like, well, what is going to get me stage time? What is the AD going to like? And mm-hmm. it was so, yeah. and like Twitch just exists as this, pro- this platform where you can just literally like do whatever, like whatever kind of like dumb ass weird show you want to do you can do and there's like the only the only person you have to who has to approve it is yourself and like after like like you know i was at ucp for like 10 years after 10 years of you know kind of like always asking permission to do what i wanted to do it's it's like rad to just have a platform where you can just do what you want to do yeah i love your particularly love the 
<laughs> the sketch that you did where you're the teacher to a on the first day of class to gremlins uh, oh yes yeah i do that every once in a while it's like yeah it's it's yeah it's just i i i'm a teacher in a classroom and all my students are gremlins that was like <laughs> a developed for like a little sketch show and then i liked it a lot and i was like now i'm just like doing it a little more regularly it's weird but like yeah like i edited it like i had to edit all these footage of like gremlins acting up in a classroom <laughs> and then i can like and then i have that all that footage like uh, like attached to different buttons so like I can like you know trigger different reactions from the characters it's like fun and weird and complicated but I love it it's uh, so I love the gremlins and I you know I would say like as a kid the first one scared me significantly yeah. but the se- but I, by the time I saw the second one I was a little bit older and the second one is really kind of genius it, oh, I, I, mean, love... they, they, I guess they both are I love yeah they're like my two probably like like, like just my two favorite movies. Like, and I don't know that there's one that I like more than the other. Sometimes I'll be like, oh, I like two more, I like one more. But yeah, like literally like right now my bedroom is all like, I have just like, I've, I've just collected a ton of Gremlins prints over the years. And now I feel like it's a little weird, but like now my bedroom is just like all Gremlins prints. Um, but yeah, <laughs> fuck it. but two is like brilliant. Two is like such a, you know, it, it it's... So, like, I mean, there's a lot of thing that's thought of stuff about it that's so brilliant, but, like, I I feel like so many uh, sequels, like, reset. Like, sequel, like, sequels just kind of reset, and, like, you're kind of just, like, going through the, sa- the motions the of, the, of, the, of the first one again. And, yeah. like, the second one, like, it, the Gremlins 2, like, kind of, like, is, like, okay, we're starting with the same energy that, like the first grem- the Gremlins ended with because, like, the first Gremlins, like, amps up to this, like, really, like, it starts kind of, like, as, like, a, you know, like, a little, as, a, as like, a quaint little family picture and, like, ramps up into this, like, cr- like gonzo comedic horror thing and, like, yeah. the, fir- the second movie is, like, okay, we're starting there and, like, amping up from that. And yeah, I think it's, it's a, genius. It's a, it's a heightening. Exactly. Yes. What is the name of the wonderful actor, the uh, British, is he British, who, who plays the head of the corporation in the Oh, John yeah. Glover? I want John Glover, yes, I want to yes. say. Yes, yes. He's outstanding in it. There's something about his, his teeth in that movie that I, I never forget. Like, he's just got this gleaming and yeah. sinister smile. Like um, a veneer, yes. Do you, know yeah. the, do you know the story about that character? No. Uh, so the, so that character was like very, I think it's pretty obvious, but like very specifically like based on Donald Trump, like every, and everything like oh. clamp tower is like everything about it is like, just like, you know, pulled from Trump. And I guess in the original script, he was like supposed to be much like just more explicitly like the villain of the movie. But then they cast John Glover and like John Glover is like so like charismatic and like charming that they're like, yeah, "Ah, let's just like lean into that and make the character like kind of like the nice and a little bit of a hero. And that's why, yeah, that's that. But that's why it is such a, it is such like a weird thing that it's like, Oh, the Trump character is like kind of like a nice like guy that you're supposed to like get along with. Um, (laughs) But yeah, yeah. I saw, uh, not to veer off too much, but on an inauguration day, it was just coincidence, but on a 2017 inauguration day, I, I, was, I saw uh, Gremlins 2 at a theater here in L.A. with the director, Joe Dante, speaking beforehand. And oh, all wow. the questions were like, do you feel responsible for, like, like getting Trump elected? Like, did you, like, normalize Trump in 1990 with Gremlins 2? <laughs> 
And he was just like, I don't know, like, we were making a movie, like, you know, it's like, it wasn't like, he was like, it wasn't like a, it wasn't like, we're like, let's make this character nice. It was just like, you know, you're making movies and you face, pro you face obstacles and you make decisions. And one yeah. of the, and it was like, oh, we, our villain was too nice. So we leaned into it. It wasn't like a disconscious thing, but yeah. I mean, I feel like so many people are participated in normalizing Trump at the time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's plenty of blame to go around. I think that, um, you know, that his performance uh, in that in uh, John Glover's performance in that movie is is fantastic. And but you're but it was part of a commercialization. It was a sort of a acknowledgement within the movie of a sort of commercialization of um uh, the movies at the time, right? Like toys and all that. Yeah. Stuff. It was in the middle of the heyday of like yeah, action absolutely. figures and things. Absolutely. And you know, even like the first Gremlins like has a little bit of an underbelly of that, but like yeah. it, it really, they really like kind of like amp it up in like the second one where there are points where like there are just Gremlins with like the Warner Brothers logo like tattooed on them and <laughs> you know, segments that take place, you know, it ends with like the one, the John Glover being like, oh, we got to turn Gizmo into a toy. So yes. Yeah. And just like the sequel, like kind of like sequel vibes in general of that, of that era. What was your, um, so when you were growing up, because you have such a great love of pop culture and, uh, and I'm curious, like, where, where did that start? Um, and also, I guess, asking you about your sense of humor as well. Like, where, where did you pick that up? Was it uh, uh, the TV shows you were watching with your family? Did you, did you seek out stuff on your own at an early I, age? Yeah, I mean, I feel like it was stuff. I feel like probably like a lot of kids of my era, it did start with like stuff that, you know, just, like, I absorbed with my family. My family were, like, big movie watchers. We'd go into the movies or just, like, you know, we had, like, our little rituals of all, you know, gathering to watch movies on Friday, Saturday nights. And we had, we definitely had, like, movies that we watched, like, a lot. We had definitely had movies that were, like, you know, like, every once a month we'd all, like, watch The Burbs or something, which is another movie oh from dire God, the yeah. director of Gremlins, Dante. But yeah. I, fe I feel like, you know... The real kind of like upset. Okay, so I think like the the movies that really tr that really started. I think were like I remember as a kid like like even before I got really into Gremlins, which was a big movie for as a kid. But like Who Framed Roger Rabbit coming out was like a huge oh, yeah. watershed thing for me as a kid. Like I was just like that was the first thing that I was like, I'm obsessed with this. Yeah. I want all the merchandise, but I also like, and I want to see the movie, but I also like need to know everything about how this movie was made. So I had like the books and like the TV special recorded about the making of Roger Rabbit. So I feel like that, honestly, that movie I feel was kind of like the flip a switch moment for me where I'm like, Oh, like this is what I'm into. And this is what I want to kind of devote my life to in a little bit, uh, uh, in a way. Yeah, and Roger Rabbit. I mean, they sort of pull the curtain back on filmmaking and and, and yeah. Hollywood, and it it, it sort of um, makes it it's such a fun world. Did that? So did you? I I don't know if I ever asked you. Did you go to film school? Is that what you? I, I did go to film school. Yes, I went to Emerson in Boston. Oh yeah. Oh cool. Yeah. I'm trying to think of people we know in common now. Uh, but where did you go? I, mean, you're I know you. I know you told me this. But me. Wait. Oh sorry. Sorry. What's that? You're you're younger than me though. Uh, maybe not. How old are you? I'm 39. I'm older than you, actually. Oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah, do you I'm... know... So I went to NYU, but I was in a drama program there. The, the folks that I know at Emerson are Robert Grigsby Wilson. It was oh, I know the there. name. I remember. And did you know maybe Gregory Cohn? I didn't. I remember. All these names are familiar, but I don't know them. So, but, I, but I do... I know. I want to ask you, because, like, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's... A, I'm... I'm 
Thanks for saying that you think I'm younger. Yeah, my age is <laughs> like, but yeah, I, I, I turned 40 and uh, this is this is the part I'm going to ask you not a doubt, uh, but I did turn 40 in the pandemic. Um, uh, the, what I was going to say, um, I have, I have NYU friends cause I had a, a high, one of my best high school, my best friend in high school, who's actually getting married, uh, this weekend, uh, uh, he went to NYU. So I knew, so I know my, so I know some NYU kids that are probably the same year. What, what year did you graduate NYU? I graduated in 04. Okay. So I, yeah, so we would have been, oh, Michael, but you might've known, some of the some of my NYU people. The big one is: Do you know John Watts, director of Spider Man uh, Homecoming and Spider Man, the other one about? Home? I don't know. I mean, well, you know, the what's interesting about NYU is they and and stupid about it is that they really kept the film school and the drama school separate. Which okay. Is, okay. So what we ended up, I would see a lot of like NYU short films that were starring the filmmakers. And okay, okay. the performances were uneven, but the writing was cool. The the shots were cool. The the way I knew uh, a lot of the film school people was the, was that they would throw some of us in the same uh, room at a dorm, and those folks are working. I think were are still working in comics, which was interesting oh, cool. to me. That was a period of time, and I, I didn't see, understand that at all coming in. And they were like, "Well, we're we're big comic book fans," and I was I, I didn't make the I was like, "You're not." I, I, the fact that they didn't start by saying, "Oh, I'm a big Scorsese fan," or yeah. something. That was new to me at the time, but that was a period of time in which um, it was right before these superhero movies just started to yeah. dominate. Um, uh, yeah, the, the, so, I mean, yeah, and like I said, my friend Jeff is the one I mainly know from NYU, but, like, I used to work with his friend John all the time, who is now, like, deal. just a, like, yeah, the, like a Marvel, like a Marvel boy. I, I do remember taking the tour of Emerson around that time, and we did meet the head of the editing department, and that person was a, a real character. It was this guy who was, like, very kind of, uh, craggy is a word in my Was it Pete, was it, what, I think I know you're cranky? talking about it. Pete Shivani. He he put on a real show for us, and he was like, oh, my students are working on these movies. And yes, that's definitely, that was definitely Pete Shivani. Yeah, he was a character. He was uh, a character. I feel like he, pa- I mean, that was 20 years ago. Yeah, he must have. Yeah. But yeah, he was a very, like, he, like, like it, he was one of those guys who was like, you know, like Emerson was like his little kingdom and, you know, he really yeah. loved to rule. Well, it's a, it was an outstanding editing program, clearly. Um, Thank you. So, uh, you know, I haven't had too many folks on here who were uh, and are regular players over at UCB. Of course, we talked about this already. The pandemic claimed both the UCB Sunset yes. Campus and I believe the Chelsea School in New York. Yeah, I believe theoretically Franklin is the only one left standing, but I don't oh even God. think there's not any word about when that's going to reopen. Um, and you did you begin your sketch writing career there? Um, I did do a little I did. I was like on a college sketch team um, back in back in Emerson. But then I kind of but that was kind of it until uh, before I got to UCB. Did you do Groundlings as well? I didn't. I only, like, honestly, I only started UCB as a, um, you know, I was kind of on my little editing, editing slash, like, trying to be, like, a screenwriter track when I first got out to LA, and that was just, like, you know, I, I liked all that stuff, but it was also very, like, socially isolating, so I really only started UCB because I was, like, I fucking want to, I want to, like, meet people. Yeah, and I think, I would say that UCB is a great place to go for writers. And if yes. you're more of a performer, uh, I might recommend going over to Groundlings first. What, what was special about UCB to you? Um, 
I don't know. I, I guess just at the time, it, it was such, like, you know, I, I, at the time I started, which I think would have been, like, late, like, I think, like, late 2009, you know, the, the, the theater just still had its very, like, it was kind of, like, at this, like, perfect it was probably at its, like, m most perfect point of being, like, both still, like, the cool, like, indie punk rock theater, but while still, like, having, like, now all of a sudden having this reputation for, like, this is the, sh this theater could also, you know, get you on SNL, or this is, mm -hmm. like, where all the, so, like, it had this, like, it was, like, and I think over time, you know, it kind of lost, it more and more kind of, like, lost its, like, punk rock edge and and just became more and more, like, the corporate thing. I mean, I still love it, but, you know, it's, it. but, like, just at that time, it was kind of, like, this, like, you know, it was right in that, the middle of that perfect Venn diagram of still seeming, like, very hip and very cool and, but, and still having, like, you know, a real, like, a good, like, an amazing industry reputation behind it. Yeah. I discovered the, the, the Chelsea location. It was probably... Uh, my last year of college so about 2004 yeah. and it was it's under it was under this Gristidi's supermarket and I do remember just going to shows there and being like this is the coolest thing that's happening in New York yeah like um, the stuff I remember seeing like even like like, like 2009 the stuff I remember like was so like it was just like wild it's like you kind of like it, it felt very like just I don't know I remember it like uh they did a show back in 2009 called like chat roulette live which was just like live on stage going through chat roulette and it was just like like <laughs> crazy like this the people you'd come across and just like it was like somebody people were doing this like insane stuff on stage and you just kind of like wanted to be a part of it yeah did, what you can you tell me a bit about a show that you wrote for for three years at UCB called Seinfeld the Purge? Oh, I mean, uh, yeah, that was just a little. Uh, that was a play I wrote. Um, that was essentially a. Um, it was an episode of Seinfeld that took place during uh, the. The, the the purge like the movie the, like within like the movie that it was like an episode of Seinfeld that that happened within the world of the purge and yeah that was kind of it Would, yeah that's what I, I mean it's pretty self-explanatory in the title but it, the, the 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 creative ramifications of it are really funny what, was, so yeah. were they were they murder was the cast of the Seinfeld were they murdering or trying not to get murdered or a little of both uh it was like a little of both like it was kind of like more like it kind of like stemmed from this place of when like the like like the per like I think like good horror premises like gets you thinking about okay well like what would I do in this situation and that's like what happened when the uh, the per when the first purge movie happened and like I realized like like you know there were all these kind of like little like it like everyone always like fell back to like the little like social like when we were my, my horror friends were talking about it it would always like fall like we'd always fall back to these like little like social things of like well like what if you like you know what if you kill someone like a second after the purge ends then are you in trouble and like and like it was just all these conversations i was like oh, this sounds like an episode of seinfeld um like where we're just like it's just like sign we're just like seinfeld characters talking about like you know like like one of the store one of the plots i have is that like George in the store is like George wants to ki like murder a friend 
for like some obnoxious for some like reason but like his friend is black so he wants to make it clear that like he's not like he's not racist this isn't like a racist purge oh my god it's not a hate crime it's It's not a hate it's not a hate purge it's like a it's like i'm doing it like because like uh i think the reason in this story was that like he never like let uh george like put add songs to his playlist at parties and he's like that's why i want to purge him it has nothing to do it's just the so like it was like all those conversations that made me like want to i was like this could be an episode well actually i originally wrote it as a um i originally wrote it as a just a sketch for my sketch team at the time and we tried to do it and basically like basically no one on my team could do like a good seinfeld impression to the point where we actually when we rehearsed it, it was just like the game of the sketch is just, would just be bad seinfeld impressions like there's that's all it would be <laughs> right. like that's all anyone would be paying attention to so like my director at the time uh justin donaldson was just like you should just write this as a full half hour and we can get act- do it as a play and get actual sign and get actual good impersonators and we did and yeah it ran for three years oh my god that's awesome um so you know, do you think that do you think UCB is going to open new locations again? Do you, or do you think I mean, the pit has now closed in New York as well. IO has shut its doors for good. What are your what are your thoughts uh, on what can come out of the live improv and sketch schools in the wake of both the pandemic and a sort of boiling point for demands, improving student safety and uh, inclusiveness? Uh, that, oh, that's a that's a big question. And um I feel like... Was it getting better before the pandemic happened? I feel like it really wasn't like... I feel like it didn't really start to get better until like... Or, or discussions about how it could get better didn't really start in earnest. I mean, there were, you know, things cropped up. But from my perspective, yeah. those conversations didn't really start until like after the pandemic. Like the pandemic. Honestly, like, you know, the big like kind of UCB call out i like came i you know uh, this summer i think it was like around march or may during the like when i think like you could feel like the very specifically feel like the ripples of the george floyd protests like kind of like spreading just everywhere you know yeah. that's uh, also when a lot of you know uh com- like you know comedians within the in the in the ucb communities started talking up about their problems with the system their their you know them just getting discriminated against within that system and you know calling out for it to do better and uh you know so i i as you know i saw there were like smaller thing attempts towards that as time went on like before the pandemic but it wasn't really until after until that all happened that i feel like the we really started seeing those discussions happening in earnest. Sadly, it just like was like after the, it, it just was at a point like when, I don't know, we don't know how it can affect the theater because we don't know if the theater, how or when the theater's coming back. I, I personally think, you know, we're going to see a lot of more, you know, I, I feel like prior to UCB opening, we were in a little bit more, there was a little bit of like a wild west time of like stand of like just improv comedy jet comedy yeah. in general in LA uh where you know it was just a lot everyone was kind of like running their own shows and I feel like yeah. we're gonna probably see a, like a return to that and then the like the ecosystem will kind of like figure itself out again but I, I feel like maybe the eras of these like mega theaters are you know or not over but like the way kind of you know I feel like every like 
every theater like kind of has their moment in the sun you know there's a, like for, like second city was the biggest thing for a while and then io kind of usurped that and then uc ucb kind of usurped that and like i think we're just at a point where probably like ucb has had its like had its time in the sun it's no longer the coolest hippest thing and we're gonna like the we're just back in a phase of like figuring out what that's going to be if anything yeah, so we're looking maybe for something new. Yeah, I think yeah. that's uh, I think that's interesting. And so, and you're you're currently on a two person all trans sketch team called Red and Yellow. It's true. Yes, yes. And have you been back to playing shows? Are you out playing shows? Uh, we are not back. We have not. Uh, we 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 did a we did our last like uh, we did a awesome sketch fest back in April, but that was online. Like they were doing, they've been doing it all online, but yeah, we're back uh, pretty soon. We're going to be back to doing shows. I think we have our first like return show in mid August in no early August uh, for, I mean, do you know what bug con is? No, (laughs) it's this, this is other weird, like weird little like comedy ecosystem that my partner, my partner, Kate, they're part of, and they do like a convention down in Burbank every year. So we're going to perform at that. Wow. And then I think we're going to, we're starting to earn it. We really want to do like a tour sometime soon. Uh, I think we're, we, 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 we really want to play someone in New York. So yeah, we're, but <laughs> like, we're just sort of like entering discussions about what, uh, like what we're going to look like now and what we're going to do. And, um, you know, I, uh, my partner, like, it, it, like, uh, um, we have to like res- uh, the, we have to like restructure some of our stuff because uh, my friend my partner Kate uh, they they came out they came, I feel like it's okay to talk about this they came out recently um, uh, and, you know a lot of our so like a lot of like our, our comedy plays our our comedy plays with like gender ro- gender roles and gender yeah. archetypes a lot. Um, so now, like, it's not so much that we have to restructure, but it's just like, oh, like, we have a different perspective on it now than we did, like, even as, t- as like, uh, two trans people. Like, we have different uh, perspective on that now than we did uh, just a couple months ago. So we're excited to kind of discuss how that is going to affect, like, our comedy, how we're going to rewrite certain sketches to reflect that. But it's very, it's, it's cool. It's exciting. That is exciting. I think that, you know, in my little experience uh, with improv and things like that, I think that you what we watched a lot happening was there would be oftentimes uh, performers who would be switching genders while playing different characters in things, even if they were a cis person. But um, is there a kind of a is there ever a kind of a playing with that idea when you both perform this kind of reclaiming of that? kind of like what what was previously considered jokey about that yeah in fact we have like an entire like probably my favorite sketch is like is about that specific is about that specifically um we have like this like sketch that like uh starts with both of us playing like playing men um and and like then I kind of like break from the sketch and I talk about like this feels like weird and uncomfortable like as a trans woman like playing a man on stage feels kind of like weird and uncomfortable. And then my friend is like, oh like don't you know like the 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 golden rule of playing like a man on stage? All you got to do is like wear a backwards hat. And then it just becomes a sketch <laughs> about how like it's it kind of like becomes a sketch about like like the hacky ways 
people represent other genders in like genders other than their own in sketches uh, or in sketch comedy, kind of like the lazy. it's about like the lazy hacky ways, the way that like, you right. know, you'll put on a backwards hat or a fucking like, if you're a cis man playing a woman, you'll put on like a, like, like a unbrushed, a very like unbrushed wig. Like, it's just like, you know, <laughs> cause I think like a lot of, I feel, I see this, I feel like this is, I see this less with like, cis women playing men but i feel like with like cis men playing women there is a very like i'm like i'm all for it like i think you know like i i i think the theater like sketch comedy and the stage gave me a place to really like kind of like experiment with like my gender before i like figured stuff out entirely which i'm very grateful for but you know i think there so like i think do what you want but like commit to it and i think a lot of like cis men playing women don't necessarily like there's always this like layer of like i'm not doing this for real guys this is just a joke see this way i didn't really right. see if i cared uh, i didn't really br- i didn't brush this wig out because that would look like i cared about it um and i think like you know i didn't like i'm, I'm i still have a full beard on and uh, you know not that that's maybe that's me being a little judgmental because women can have beards but like you know what i mean like yeah commit you know if you're playing yeah, don't do, don't do it in a lazy way. Don't do it in a hacky way. Yes, exactly. Don't do it, but don't. That should never be the joke. Like do like play whoever you want. Play well. I mean, don't play whoever you want. But like uh, gender wise, play whoever you want. But like don't um, don't make that joke that like hey I'm doing this. That don't make that the joke is my whole thing. Yeah, yeah, totally. Now, so you went on to work as a comedy writer for. I guess what I would call like many app and dot com based streamers like yes. like Awesomeness TV and you wrote for Verizon Go ninety and uh, Nerdist Industries and Quibi. Yes, I did write. Wait, what did I? You're what did I write for Verizon Go ninety? Why can't I remember? I definitely did. There, I can check. Let me see here. I like that like digital space that like, the digital space era of my career is like aside from Nerdist is all a little bit of a blur. These well, oh my IMDb is not working for some reason. Okay, whatever. I'm um, like, is this a lie? I, put, I part of me is like, is, this, is that a lie I put on my resume? But also like, why would I lie about <laughs> that? That's not a, a a good lie. I wrote for Verizon Go ninety. Well, I you but you also wrote for Funnier Die's multi Emmy nominated Game of Thrones recap series, Gay of Thrones. It's starring true. Queer Eyes, Jonathan Van Ness. Yes. And uh, additionally, you've written for kids series, both live action for companies like Nickelodeon, and you mm-hmm. wrote twenty nine episodes of an animated series for Cartoon Network called Thundercats Roar. Uh, even more, they, the IMDb just stopped updating it. <laughs> how many? Uh, yes. How many writing packets? would you say that you've written in your career so far writing packets oh my god like it like all combined like north of 40 wow my god uh, and do you like because those are they're incredibly time consuming like it for, mm-hmm. for me as an actor if i have to put together an audition i spend i mean I, I feel like i spend so much time on something uh that uh, it really is just, you know, maybe it's 14 pages of dialogue yeah. at, at the most. But I feel like when you're writing a packet, it, it just must be um, incredibly time consuming and yeah. uh, se- a lot of second guessing and trying to figure out the tone of an individual series. Yeah. And just being like, what's the point of this? That, like knowing there's like 200 other people like doing this exact same thing. I don't like some. And sometimes, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, there were some bad packets in there. I, I think 
packs have gotten a little better because people have been kind of like uh, raising, like, you know, rightfully so, kind of like raising a stink about how exploitative it is of right. uh, young writers. Yeah. Not, I, you know, including I mean, it's, me. it's, unpaid, it's so much it's unpaid work. Unpaid. And, you know, uh, uh, you know, I remember doing packets for shit like, like not shit, but like you know, like Adam, like uh, like doing a pack for Adam Room's everything, where you like write an entire episode and outline a second episode, and it's like this is so much work, guys. Like, come on. I really do think that in our on all sides of our business for talent, that you know that they you should be able to do some kind of a cross pitch with something else that you've done, where that gets yeah. to the meeting, the meeting goes well, and you can start writing. You know. I agree. I agree. It, you know. I feel like if you're a good writer, like you can kind of like adapt to the voice of anything, you know, and you're, and, and also like, hopefully as a, uh, as like an exact, as you know, whoever's doing this hiring, you don't, you don't necessarily want to bring someone in because they can, because of their ability to adapt. Like you should trust that a writer can do that, but it's really about like, be like, okay, what specific things about this person's voice do I want to add to the mix of this show? And then, you know, they can, that's, from my perspective, is what's more important. Yeah. Not, like, can you write it, like, you know, can you write the perfect, like, Samantha B uh, monologue? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, leave some room for some surprise. Yeah. Why do we, why do we need to homogenize? Yeah. Um, one thing I haven't gotten to ask many writers about is, uh, is this fight between the WGA and the talent agencies over controversial packaging fees mm-hmm. for projects that were often favoring the agencies as a, at the expense of the talent. Many writers fired their agents during this period. It was just pre-COVID. Uh, it mm-hmm. gave birth to the Twitter hashtag WGA staffing boost. Yes. Where, where writers could solicit recs from peers via Twitter for jobs navigating around the agencies. It was a thrilling thrilling spectacle of bravery and transparency. I'm, I'm always in awe of the kind of effective solidarity that the writers have maintained historically in the business when it comes to wages. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, have the writers mostly succeeded in this effort? Um, I'll be honest with you. Um, it's like, I, I don't have the best perspective on that because uh, I've only written the, uh, the only things I've written for uh, that have been covered by guild have been animation guild, which is a completely different guild um one that uh doesn't have as doesn't negotiate for and nearly as good of uh uh deals or or animation writers if you're not covering the wa if you're only covering the animation guild you're getting paid like not a lot less than what like an animation what you would in the wga but um i will say as speaking in uh, about like solidarity and uh, amongst writers there has been more and more of a push to be like like all writing should be covered by WGA. Like we shouldn't be allowing like the the animation guild to kind of get a, like or or really like more like studios shouldn't be be getting away with exploiting the animation guilds kind of like shitty like you know shitty price points uh, mm-hmm. to exploit writers to get content for like way cheaper than they should be getting it so like there's now a big show of solidarity between the writers guild and the animation guild being like we gotta get like everyone to, like together on this um, so that I've been seeing I, I don't know if I've seen that really it's in the early stages that's kind of just been happening um, but that's that's what, that's what I can speak to 
Yeah, and there's a new fight now to raise wages for the hard work that PAs and writers assistants yes, do. Yes, yes. And I guess improve the hierarchy and pay raises that go with the different staff positions on the on a show. What, what Do you know what the chain of these jobs is? Does it go PA, writer's assistant, staff writer, coordinating producer? Um, it, it, I know it differs from... It differs from uh li- from live action or to to live action to animation and animation there's only really like a few stops you get you go from um yeah i guess theoretically writers like writer assistant to uh there's not like P- the the pas on uh, in most writer animation shows i've been on like kind of like bridge writing and like the actual like animation work like the actual animating cool. so we yeah. don't really have like strict usually have strict writers pas the show I'm on right now does, but most usually not. But so usually, yeah, it's like like writer assistant to staff writer to story editor to showrunner. So you really only have those three things. Uh, but in there are a lot more like titles. If you're writing for like the Goldbergs, for say, there are a lot more stops. Like you can get like between like staff writer and like story editor. You know, they're like produ- right. they're like producing credit. They're producing credits and like executive producing credits. So you know that it it it's. It, there's a lot more there are a lot more changes choice chances for like promotions and pay bumps in live action and what what how do you do they often talk about breaking story how how, how does that work in the animation world um i mean it kind of I, it's 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 been different from every sh- from show to show like i don't know if like the animation world has as a strict like this is the way you do it um, as the, as most like live action shows do. Um, what do you have a, do you have a preference? Um, so when I worked on Thundercats, uh, and maybe this is just because of how I am as a writer and, you know, I like kind of like, like being kind of like solitary. Uh, when I was on Thundercats, they would do a thing where like, I was the only staff writer on Thundercats. So like every, so like once a week, the showrunner and the store and the story editor or head writer would come to me and be like, Hey, this is like what we're thinking about for the story this week. And then like, they give me like little plot points and I'd be like, okay. And then like, I'd go off and like turn that into like a full, like outline of like, this is the story. And like, so that was, that was nice. It gave me a lot of anonymity. I got to go like write around wherever I wanted. I could just take my laptop wherever I wanted on the, the, um, Warner brothers lot and kind of just like chill out and write. Um, but then there was, but like another, it's been different for show to show. Like the show I'm on right now um, is much more of a like it's a, another one of the show, but it's much more of a traditional writers' room where it's like we're all gathering in the room in, or in the virtual room to like break the story and then like go off and write outlines and scripts and so yeah. It, but it, in my experience from anime, like sometimes on animation, like all you do is the outline and you don't even write scripts. The the everything like once you're done with the outline, you give that you just give that straight to the animators and they start like like kind of like creating a script and storyboard format based on that. So it's That's all so very cool. different. And do you have a big dream project of your own? Like uh, that you you're excited about, you want to get made. Do you have, do you have like a big feature idea? Um, I haven't worked in features in a, I haven't written a feature in a long time, but I, there's always like a party that like, I, I have a lot of like a little I lot of have a lot of horror stuff and like there's a part of me that still would have lo- would love to do a horror like do my own horror feature and direct yeah direct yeah I I you know sometimes I'm like am I t- did I like age out of that like is like 40 41 like too old to be like I'm jumping into the 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 short film like you know 
Uh, so I, sometimes I'm like, oh, I wish that was stuff I really jumped into in my 30s. But, like, I didn't know myself in my 30s. I, I, I already figured myself out in my 30s. And now I feel like I'm in a much better place to do that stuff. But I'm like, to age out of it? Is, am I too old? But oh, I would. God. But like, I hope not. I hope not. But, yeah, I, I'd love to, like, you know even in the short term, like produce like a, like a, like a couple, like produce a horror short in the next like year or two and direct and like star and all that stuff. Awesome. And, and finally, where, where can people find you online? Um, you can find me on Instagram, Twitter and Twitch as uh, Joan Haley Ford. That's uh, on all those uh, platforms is Joan Haley Ford. Um, and yeah. And, you can find my, uh, I, I stream semi-regularly on Twitch and you can, and you know, look for show, stuff I've written for. I think you can only find Thundercats Roar on, on, um, Cartoon Network. Not even that anymore. I think you can only find it on Amazon. Like they, oh, they, they, there was a, a lot of reasons for this, but they just kind of like, they got, they burned that show off. Um, and then, but, uh, look for, now I'm writing for Tiny Toons University. So look for that. Oh on my gosh. Amazing. HB. Oh yeah. It's fun. It's fun. Uh, theoretically, Steven Spielberg has written stuff that, wrote, not written stuff. Steven Spielberg has read stuff I've written. So that's a little oh bit of a gosh. dream come true. Um, but yeah, look for Tiny Toons University coming to HBO Max next year sometime. Congratulations. That's so awesome. Thank you. Uh, well, Joan, thank you so much for doing this. Um, you're a comedy genius. I, I'm lucky to have had the chance to work with you. And, uh, you know, thank you for being such a great collaborator always. Oh, thank you. I will say, like, of all, I, I feel like of, I hope I can go a little longer. Of all, like, I feel like you were one of the best, like, collaborators I worked with at Funny or Die. Just, like, you're, like, you're the, you're the ideal kind of collaborator, both, like, you had a very clear idea of what you wanted, so it made it so, and you made that very easy to understand while still giving like me room to like do like you know add my own things. And that's always what I appreciate in a collaborator, like especially when we're working on your thing. It's like let me know what you like, you know, be specific about what you want, but still like making you feel like. I'm a valued creative partner. So that was always great. <laughs> That's so sweet to hear. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. I, no I so problem. Appreciate it. Well, I those you. days. Yeah. I'm uh, editing in too. your apartment. You're I know. Like, oh, uh, Catherine says hi, by the way. Tell Catherine I say hi back. Um, thank you for coming on and chatting with me. And I wish you continued success. You as well, Claude. Thank you. If you listened all the way to the end of this episode, you get a Things Are Going Great For Me participation trophy. Show us your screenshot of you finishing the episode, and we'll shout you out on our socials. No cheating. So far, these episodes have been longer this season, but you go the extra mile. Thanks for being you. Give us a subscribe and those sweet five-star ratings, a nice comment, and we'll return the favor by bringing you even more quality content in the future. You can check out our Patreon and our merch for more ways to support the pod. You can find both in our Instagram handle, at things are going great for me. Stay tuned, because we've got five more incredible episodes in Season 2 premiering every Thursday, including interviews with Sarah Levy, Joe Tippett, Alicia Oxy, Pej Vidat, Madison Shepard, Mapuana Makia, and Shelley Bala, to name more than a few. Our sound engineer is Christopher Frontiero, and our series composer is Cormac Bluestone. Our graphics editor is Sierra Hauser. All right, for you truly thorough listeners, 
here's a secret. At one point, I thought about doing this as a fake podcast, where it's a recap show about the good place or something, but in the first episode, I would plan to riff on a tangent and then proceed on a Proustian journey that extended into subsequent episodes, winding a more and more unusual and lyrical story that ultimately descends into either madness or true euphoria. And now that I'm thinking about it, I think that was the smarter play. See you next time. Dum, 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 dum.